The Tudor History and Travel Show is a podcast that brings Tudor history to life by exploring Tudor places and artefacts in the flesh. You will be travelling through time with Sarah Morris, the Tudor Travel Guide, uncovering the stories behind some of the most amazing Tudor locations and objects in the UK. Because when you visit a Tudor building, it is only time and not space which separates you from the past. And now over to your host, Sarah Morris. Hello, my time-travelling friends, and welcome to this, the first episode of the Tudor History and Travel Show in 2022. How are you? Has your 2022 got off to a good start? Did you enjoy a break over the festive season? I do hope so. I know that I certainly stepped away from the computer and enjoyed, yes, a little bit of time off Although this time of year is always a great time of year for planning for me, and as a consequence, I have a pretty good idea of what I'm going to be doing with regards to special projects uh, related to the Tudor Travel Guide in the coming year. And I have some very exciting projects ahead. And I look forward to um, telling you about those as we go. In fact, if you are already subscribed to my email list, you'll already be aware of what some of those projects are. And it is, of course, the best way to keep in touch with all the latest news and events. So if you're not already subscribed to my list, I recommend that you head over to the Tudor Travel Guide homepage and there will be a link in the description associated with this podcast and from that homepage, you will be able to hit the subscribe button. And of course, as a gift and a thank you from me, you will receive a digital colour brochure of my Your Tudor Weekend Away in Kent, which features both Hever Castle, Penser's Pace and Pashley Manor Gardens. So that's the first bit of housekeeping. The second bit of housekeeping is just to say as we hit the new year, Just a massive thank you to all my patrons who continue to support my work and to support this show, Um, and particularly those who supported me right the way through uh, last year. It really is deeply appreciated, although I do still have some room for new patrons. I'm about 50% of the way funded on stage one. So if you are a listener who enjoys this podcast and you want to support my work, then Again, I'll put a link in the description associated with this podcast. So so that's a big thank you from me to all my patrons. Now, I think we are ready to get on with the show. Last summer, I travelled to Hever Castle to meet up with Owen Eberson, who, of course, is the joint co-curator at Hever and is, of course, a friend of this show. And this time, I wanted to talk to Owen Not about the usual Anne of Hever, but the other Hever girl. Of course, what we're talking about here is Anne of Cleves. Now, we all know that Hever Castle is a mecca for Anne Boleyn fans, the childhood home of Anne Boleyn. But sometimes it takes a little bit longer to realise, in fact, that another Tudor queen once called Hever home. 
And I know, as you will hear in this podcast, that Owen has a bit of a soft spot for Anne of Cleves. And so on one uh, very busy day in the summer, we sequestered ourselves away in a private and hidden part of the castle and indulged in a lovely chat all about the other Anne of Hever. So let's go over and enjoy the conversation. Hello, Owen. <laughs> Here we are again in the beautiful uh, Hever Castle. Thank you for talking me t- to me today about the other Anne of Hever, of course, Anne of Cleves. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me back uh, on your show. It's always a pleasure and so lovely to have you back here at Hever Castle. Now, we are recording, aren't we? When it's a day when it's open to the public. Now, we, we're in one of the hidden rooms at the moment. So where are we in we the castle? Ah, so this room isn't open to the general public. It's rarely seen on camera. And uh, we're in Lord Astor's study. Uh, so this was uh, always a private room. Uh, it was most likely part of the Chatelaine's office during the Tudor era. And uh, so, yes, this is rarely on public display. And it's beautifully and ornately carved in the style of Grindling Gibbons um, uh, from 1903 uh, in this beautiful Sabaku wood. Um, so, yes. Yes, and so. now you were telling me before we started talking, there's all sorts of hidden panels and secret doorways in here. Oh, so, yes. Uh, maybe you can show me some of those later. Indeed. But I was making the point that the, the castle is open to the public today so that people listening to this may hear shouts of people in the background or oh, footsteps yes. above us because people are looking around the castle as we speak. It's a very busy day at the end of July here. So um, bear with us on that. But look, I know you have a soft spot for Anne of Cleves. So... Um, um, maybe you can start off by telling us how she came to be living here at Hever. Yeah, absolutely. I've, I have a huge amount of respect for this other Anne of Hever. Uh, she's often been uh, an afterthought, really. Uh, certainly when I visited first in uh, the 1980s, um, we had a, a portrait of Anne here then um, and a name roomed after her. Um, but she was very much sort of an afterthought to the more glamorous, shall we say, Anne Boleyn. Uh, you'd never find anything of Anne of Cleves in the gift shop then. Uh, but over the years, we've uh, really tried to restore Anne of Cleves uh, to prominence here at Hever because she occupied this space for 17 years. Um, Hever was actually uh, taken as part of the Crown property um, uh, after the Boleyn's downfall. Uh, so Thomas Boleyn uh, didn't have a male heir and therefore he uh, uh, willed, I, I suppose, his properties to his brother James Boleyn. James uh, was of Norfolk. Uh, he was occupying Blickling at the time and he, uh, by indenture, traded some uh, of the Kentish properties that he inherited uh, for some Norfolk ones with the crown. So uh, Henry VIII became the owner of Hever Castle. Uh, it's a he, bit ironic, isn't it, really, after everything you have to... <laughs> it is. Uh, it's uh, quite a, a sort of chilling acquisition, really. I mean, he's destroyed the Boleyns at this point. He's uh, killed Anne Boleyn. He's killed the Boleyn heir, George. And uh, he's now uh, sort of feasting on their uh, spoils, as it were. Um, but yes, he never actually lived here uh, and instead after his rather disastrous and very brief uh, marriage to Anne of Cleves in 1540 
uh, Heva became part of the annulment settlement that was afforded to her. Um, so yes, not the not the best marriage in history, shall we say? Uh, I, I uh, think it's been very mis- misunderstood. Uh, there have been a lot of myths about why that marriage um, didn't succeed. Uh, generally and uh, more popularly it's put down to Anne of Cleves looks I, I think she was actually quite a good looking woman mm-hmm. and that the, the differences they had were cultural yeah. um, and I think Henry also had his eye on someone else uh, in Anne of Cleves employ um, so yes uh, Anne of Cleves was gifted a number of properties she didn't own them uh, they were uh, still crown property uh, she had to pay a, a rent for them, but that rent was paid out of the money she was afforded by the crown. Uh, so she had no legal right to the properties. She couldn't leave them in her will. And the vast majority of the properties that she uh, was gifted, she used uh, to let out for further income. So they were properties across the country, really, uh, a number in Sussex, um, which were slightly smaller manors that she let out and, and gleaned an income from. Mm. Hever, however, uh, was one of the more prestigious properties, uh, probably behind uh, the Palace of Richmond and the Palace of Bletchingley, uh, which were her favoured residences. Um, but after Henry's death, um, she uh, found herself at Hever more and more frequently. Um, so yes, that's how Hever became the property of this other Anne. Yes, because if I remember rightly, the Regency Council kept kind of ousting her. They ousted her from Richmond first and then she went to Bletchingley and they kind of ousted her there and Thomas Cowarden took over there. So was it almost by default, therefore, that she ended up in Hever? And when would that have been, just so people can place it on the timeline? Sure. I, I think we can more accurately date Anne's time here uh, to when she transferred from being the king's sister uh, to being the king's aunt uh, uh, when Edward came to the throne. Uh, it is, as you say, the Regency Council that firstly takes uh, the Palace of Richmond back from Anne, uh, revoking uh, the, her, her right to lease it, and then uh, uh, later the Palace of Bletchingley. Um, that really appears to have upset Anne. She was very fond of those uh, locations, and uh, she is offered instead uh, Penshurst. Uh, which she refuses because she cites her uses of Hever and her fondness for it. So um, it's really in those latter years of her life that she is residing here at Hever. And we have a good number of uh, sources that tell us that she uh, enjoyed it, that she resided here um, and uh, made good use of it. Well, I'm so glad you're putting Anne back on the map here because like you, when I first started coming to you, I had no idea that Anne of Cleves had spent time here. It was a sort of a bit of a revelation. I can't remember it when I when I found that out, but I was like, oh my goodness, a second Tudor queen. But yes. we, you know, um, you've done a lot of research on Anne of Cleves and her time here at Hever. Maybe you could try and just describe for us what the castle was like when Anne was in residence. Yeah, absolutely. So really, the castle would have been as uh, Thomas Cranmer left it when Thomas Boleyn had died. Thomas Cranmer came here and uh, went through all the Boleyn's property and um, uh, took the vast majority of it away. So 
there would have been something of an empty shell for her to to occupy when she uh, was first gifted it. But this overwhelmingly would have been the same layout as uh, the Blins had it and very, very similar to the layout that the castle is in today. So in terms of the castle exterior, very little would have changed since Anne of Cleves' time. Although we do have evidence that she invested in the property. Um, so if we imagine that we're walking through the, the gatehouse, um, this would have been a house clearly and physically divided by functionality. Um, so to the left-hand side would have been the family wing of the castle. That's where Anne would have lived. And to the right-hand side would have been the servant's domain. And this was a functioning courtyard. There would have been five doors to the house, not two as exist today. And to get to one part of the house, the functional side, to the leisure side, you would have had to have used the courtyard. There wasn't this inter... Um, intertwining of uh, the two wings as it were um, so yes actually the the house would uh, the the family house as it were the private house that Anne actually occupied was far smaller than uh, the castle uh, route that you see it in today um, so uh, the, the principal rooms that she would have occupied would have been the room now known as Anne Boleyn's bedroom uh, the Books of Hours room and the Queen's chamber, where she almost certainly slept. So, because obviously people always ask that, don't they? Yes. They want to know where, where did <laughs> whoever it was sleep? So we're talking about that solar was a, a large chamber that occupied. Is it the east or the west? I can never remember. West wing of the, the house. west wing of the house. That's right. And uh, there was a separate bedroom to the actual kind of living space. Absolutely. So uh, it's actually above where we are now. Um, the solar was so-called either because it received the greatest amount of sunlight throughout the day uh, or it derives from the fact that it provided a private space, a solitary space, uh, probably a mixture of the two. And um, so yes, th this is the the, the great chamber, the solar complex, and the best bed chamber was usually located uh, at the end of that. So we would have had the great chamber and then the room above, directly above where we are now, would have been Anne of Cleves' bedroom, the best bed chamber. Um, it had a toilet, a uh, 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 guard robe in the corner, and also an antechamber, um, which is now a considerably pink bathroom. Um, uh, so yes, that would have been the, the most prestigious bed chamber. Uh, mainly because it had a, a, a fireplace. Um, it would have been very cosy indeed. Um, so yes, uh, when Anne Boleyn stayed here and her family went in residence in the 1520s, she almost certainly would have occupied that bedchamber bed as well. So uh, two queens have, have slept. It's really mind-blowing, isn't it, to think that just <laughs> yes. above our heads right now, I can almost visualise them moving around. Yeah. Whoa. Uh, <laughs> oh, hang on to your seats. Uh, it's too exciting. Um, what, what room do you think Anne most enjoyed here at Hever? I would hazard a guess that it would be the great chamber. That really was sort of the heart of the home, the, the private home. Um, Hever, of course, is a medieval castle. And so when it was first built, um, 
the public and private divide really hadn't been established in the same way um, that the Tudors desired it uh, uh, later on in the period. Um, so much more public living uh, and communal sleeping uh, would have gone on in the years before Anne of Cleves lived here. Um, there was an ever-increasing desire for private space and Anne of Cleves' whole world really happened in that room. Uh, it was a multifunctional space. It was where she would have uh, broken her fast in the morning. It's where she would have dined privately. It's where she would have read and sewn and, and done all sorts of things. So uh, it was a really multifunctional space and her later years in life were chiefly lived in that uh, room, now known as the Books of Hours room. Um, so I hazard a guess that that would have been her favourite uh, private space. But Anne of Cleves also did like entertaining. Uh, she was quite uh, famed for her uh, good feasts. So I also think she would have uh, had a penchant for the Great Hall. Um, but perhaps most surprisingly, I'm going to cite the kitchens uh, because we know in Anne's upbringing, she would have learnt cookery, uh, quite removed to the kind of education that Anne Boleyn would have had. Um, it was a far more domestic um, uh, education. And we know that Anne uh, is involved in cookery at her other properties. Uh, so I would say she had a penchant for cooking and most likely did so here at Heaver too. Oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> so <laughs> wonderful. Just put, imagine her putting a penny on and going yes. down and doing the baking to just chill out for the afternoon. <laughs> um, that's my 21st century mind putting a spin on it there. <laughs> evidence about how Anne felt about Heaver? So we do have letters. Um, it's often mistaken um, in one of her letters that she writes to Queen Mary um, that uh, she's describing Heaver as poor. Uh, she signs this letter that's congratulating the Queen on her marriage to Philip of Spain. Um, uh, she signs it for my poor house at Heaver. Um, this is often misunderstood as being a, a sign that she thought it was inconsequential uh, or small, which it is. Uh, it's nothing of the kind. It's the modern equivalent of saying, from my humble abode. Um, Wolsey does this uh, and when he's writing from Hampton Court. Uh, he talks of his uh, humble property, his poor property. Um, 
you're going to, when you're writing to the monarch, uh, show deference, and particularly when the property you're writing from is in their gift. Um, so I, I don't, uh, I think that's a misunderstanding um, that's often attributed to that statement. Um, she has a number of letters written from the property to her brother, uh, William, and uh, William actually sends her hunting birds here. Um, so we know that she is using this as a, uh, a place of sport as well. Um, we know that at least one of her ladies is married from St. Peter's Church, and we know that Anne leaves funds for the poor of Hever. Um, all of this added together, I think, gives us a flavour that this is a place that she very much enjoys. Mm. Um, we don't have wonderful diary entries uh, gushing about Hever, I'm afraid, um, but I would say the circumstantial evidence really suggests that she was fond of the property. The fact that she rebuffed Penshurst Place because uh, she was already using Hever, I think speaks volumes about its functionality for her and, and her love of it. I'd love to know all the guests that came and who came. Yes, I know. I mean, the, the million dollar question is, did Elizabeth ever come and visit her stepmother here? They were very close and um, uh, at one time, their lives were imperiled um, at the same time um, because of the White Rebellion and Anne's location here at Hever and its proximity to Allington Castle. Um, so I'd love to think that Elizabeth came to visit Anne of Cleves and got to explore uh, her mother's house. We just don't have that primary evidence that it ever happened. I wish it did. Um, I wish we did have it. Um, I'd love nothing more in a way. Um, you know, did Elizabeth ever come inside Hever Castle? I'd love to know the answer to that question. It's one of the great unanswered questions. Um, during her reign, of course, the, the property was owned by the Wardergraves, who she persecuted. So she was probably not likely to visit the property uh, inside. But I like to think of her catching a glimpse of it on her many visits to Penshurst. That's a really good, it's a good point. And thanks for bringing that up, because people, a lot of people will be wondering, surely Elizabeth would have come and seen the place that her mother was brought up. But of course, you've given us a very good reason why she probably didn't visit. So it's well worth knowing. But you talked about turbulent times. And yes, yes when Anne of Cleves was here, obviously there was a lot of change. We had uh, King Edward VI, and then we had the whole uh, succession crisis with Mary. So can you tell us a little bit about how Anne navigated through that? And did it impact her at all? And how? Yeah, it really did. I mean, it's it's really interesting isn't it that the, the winds of change began here at Hever Castle when Anne Boleyn decided to marry Henry VIII that set in motion that um, series of events that would lead to the break with the Rhone and the those winds didn't stop blowing when Anne died on the scaffold in fact they became ever more turbulent and um, we have a full-on reformation with Edward uh, full-on Protestant Reformation. He was brought up, um, brought up um, uh, with uh, Protestant minds. And then we have a counter-reformation with Mary. So all of those, those winds, uh, Anne of Cleves is having to navigate. And she appears to have been um, certainly, I would say, a traditional Catholic, um, but perhaps far more malleable 
uh, in terms of uh, compliance than other people, uh, other of her contemporaries. Anne was a survivor. Uh, she did manage to weather the winds, but that didn't mean to say that her life wasn't imperiled at times. Um, I don't think Edward had any of the affection for Anne that ironically Henry appears to have um, uh, gained for her in the latter years of his life. Um, but Elizabeth, um, but sorry, Mary and, and Anne did have a close relationship and um, that was significantly soured when the Wyatt Rebellion took place uh, here from Kent in Allington Castle, not 15 miles away. Kent is a notorious uh, hotbed of rebellion and not least um, when Wyatt rebelled, chiefly I would say against the, the Spanish marriage um, to Philip of Spain amongst other uh, issues. Now Anne of Cleves of course was still in correspondence with her brother um, and this led to suspicion that Anne was of the plot. Um, I don't think Anne of Cleves had any idea of anything to do with the White Rebellion. Um, and of course, Elizabeth is also implicated in the rebellion. Um, uh, Edward Courtney, the Queen's cousin, is supposedly going to be the candidate to marry uh, the Lady Elizabeth and, and overthrow Mary and, um, uh, unfortunately for uh, Wyatt, Courtney gives the game away, giving the crown the upper hand. Um, now, of course, Princess Elizabeth is uh, duly taken to the Tower of London for a spell, um, but Anne of Cleves is never arrested. Um, I think what is going on here is that there is to be no stone unturned uh, during the investigation, and Anne is uh, sort of triply damned uh, it, momentarily by her location to Allington, by her relationship to Elizabeth and also her continued correspondence with her brother and her brother's uh, relationship with France. Mm. Um, but I'm not even sure that Anne was ever aware of how closely her life was imperiled. Mm. Um, we do have this letter that is sent from Hever uh, to uh, Mary and it must have been really quite puzzling for Anne because she really isn't welcome back a court after um, this point. She had a good relationship with Mary beforehand. Uh, she was in the chariot behind the Queen with Elizabeth at her coronation. Uh, you know, she is still part of the royal family. Um, but that relationship really is sou soured after that point. And it's quite a sad... Um, end to her life really I think it must have um, become her world must have become quite small yes um, after that point um, yes you get the feeling that she becomes progressively isolated yes yeah and and more affected more sad and yes. longing for home maybe towards the end of her life yeah it's it's not the um, the end of the story that I would want for her I see her as a woman of great character um, of great tolerance really for uh, the seismic shifts that happen during her uh, life. This is a woman who, you know, was born into royalty, who had great expectations um, for, you know, honouring her family and for progressing and marrying well. And there's a slightly bitter, bittersweet note to her survival in that it was never really 
uh, realised uh, in her own terms. Mm. Um, yes. mm. Well, I know that you have two portraits of Anne of Cleves at Hever, so maybe you could tell us about those portraits and, and what they tell us about the lady herself. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'm going to start with the uh, younger of the um, two portraits. We have a, a portrait that was actually created for uh, King George the first and um, it's quite an interesting portrait in that it is based on the Holbein image of her and um, but is uh, rather less flattering I would say than than Holbein actually painted her it's um, quite an unforgiving portrait in that <laughs> <Right>. regard. Um, and actually, I think this tells us quite a lot about the reputation that Anne gained posthumously for being a Flanders mayor. You know, this uh, insult that's created 100 years after her death. Um, and I think these changes in this portrait are reflective of this narrative that is built up that Anne was ugly. I don't think she was. I, I, I hinted at this earlier. I think um, there were significant cultural differences between Anne and the King. And I think um, Henry did receive a shock when he visited Anne uh, unannounced, in disguise, uh, at uh, Rochester, uh, that first uh, occasion. I think he had the shock of his life because he saw a genuine reaction to him for the first time. Um, she had no idea who he was. She was watching a bullfight. She was completely disinterested when he entered the room. It had to be pointed out to her who he was. Uh, he was engaged in this art of chivalry, this uh, notion that um, uh, it doesn't matter how the king is dressed, everyone would recognise him. And his courtiers had played along with this um, throughout his reign. We see it with Catherine of Aragon, him dressed up uh, and bursting into her, his chamber and her having to pretend that uh, she's surprised. Uh, this is the art of um, courtly love um, that Anne is completely unaware of. And I think her disinterest in him and then her obvious uh, sense of horror uh, that she has made a massive faux pas, must have translated to him as, I am not this magnificent king uh, in her eyes that uh, I should be. Um, so I think the story has almost been inverted, um, that Anne has been uh, made out to be the, the fat, smelly, ugly one in that room, <laughs> when actually it was most likely Henry that was... Um, uh, characterised as such. It's a really good point you make, actually, that Henry might have had a mirror yes. held up to him for the very first time yeah. in his adult life, certainly. Yeah. And what a shock that must have been. That's a fantastic point, Owen. Thank you so much for highlighting I think, that. I think it would have been horrific for him, actually. <laughs> and I think this... Because he was way past his best by this. He was way past his self, totally. I'd say, by this yeah. point. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> You know, um, and, and Anne was young and um, all of the descriptions we have of her um, say that she's good looking. I mean, we don't have um, 
people praising her beauty, but we also don't have people saying that she is ugly, that she looks like a horse. We have nothing of that. And indeed, when um, Henry moves on to his sixth wife, Catherine Parr, there's a good deal of evidence that Anne had hopes that he would return to her. And he actually, she complains that um, she is better looking and younger um, than, than Parr. And Chapuis agrees with her that Anne is the fairer of the two. So, and we know that Catherine Parr was good looking. Yeah. So um, it, I think it's really unfair um, that her whole story has been boiled down to this myth. And, and that portrait, that later portrait, is reflective of that myth. The other portrait is 16th century. We don't know whether it was painted in um, Anne's lifetime. We need to have more analysis done on the, the panels in which it's painted on. Um, but it's a beautiful portrait. Um, it's one of my favourite here at Hever. And it really shows, um, again, those cultural differences. She's dressed in the, um, a very different fashion to the French or the English one. And her, her dress is stunning. It's covered in seed pearls. And I think it shows a very um, humane face, a very engaging one. And yes, one that I would very much like to sit down and talk with. Mm. Really. Yes, I always say she's the one you would like to have a coffee with yes. if you could sit down with one of Henry VIII's wives. I'd love to come for a house party with Anne of Cleves. Yeah, <laughs> wonderful. Yeah, and be well fed. <laughs> so, yeah, absolutely. So maybe we should just wrap up our conversation. It might be a good way to end by just saying, so how should we remember her? We're trying to debunk this myth once and for all. So, Owen, how should we remember Anne of Cleves? I think she was pragmatic. Um, I think she was another woman who made the best of a, a bad situation. Um, I do like to think of her as a survivor. She outlived all of uh, the wives and she outlived Henry. She outlived um, uh, his heir. Um, but I think it is important to, to temper that by understanding that she did not live her survived life on her own terms and I think there was a degree of disappointment and um, restraint placed on her life and I think it's also important to remember that her largesse at the behest of the crown was entirely contingent on her restraining her life here in England not remarrying not having children um, the moment she contemplated doing any of those things everything went um, she wasn't a prisoner, um, but she also didn't live the life she was supposed to and perhaps wanted. Um, so I think it's important to recognise that too. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing your love and your knowledge all about Anne, particularly here at Hever Castle. Thank you, Owen. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Before we finish the show, remember you can support my work via my patron programme, where various levels of sponsorship are available, starting at just $1 a month. Check out all the details of how to become a patron in the link included with this podcast. Oh, and don't forget, you can be part of my closed Facebook group, where fellow time travellers like you hang out with me and each other to share some of our favourite things about visiting the UK. From great Tudor places to visit to the best way to take your cream tea in an afternoon. 
from the latest travel news to the traditional Sunday roast. So don't miss out and you can apply to join by clicking on the link in the description. So now it's back to close the show. Well, I hope you enjoyed that chat with Owen. Now, if you're interested, not only did I record the audio of that chat, uh, I also made a video while we were there. And if you're interested in seeing Owen and I in conversation, then you will need to head over to my brand new YouTube channel. So yes, in addition to my usual Tudor Travel Guide YouTube channel, which henceforth is going to be all about visiting Tudor places, lots of uh, inspiration, I hope, and top tips, travel tips about Tudor locations, my new YouTube YouTube channel, which is called Tudor Talk, uh, will contain all my videos which are related to chats with historians and researchers and other Tudor enthusiasts about Tudor people and events. And so I'm going to be publishing this video on that new channel. It's still not quite there. It's a bit a prototype-ish at the moment. Uh, we need to do a little bit more design work on the channel, but it will be coming on and coming online shortly. But I didn't want to hold this video back. So as I say, if you want to see where we're recording our chat, then again, I will put a link to that video in the description associated with this podcast. Okay, my friends. Well, I think we're coming to the end of the show. Just to say that you can join me again next month, February, February, <laughs> when I will be back at Hever Castle because not only did I get chance to uh, snatch some time with Owen while I was there, I also got time to talk to the delightful Kate McCaffrey, who some of you will know quite recently had done some wonderful research into Anne Boleyn's Book of Hours and it was jolly well time that I caught up with her and found about it for myself. So you'll get a chance to hear our chat then. Do make sure you tune in. But until then my friends wherever you are in the world have a wonderful few weeks and I'll see you back here again in February. for tuning in to today's episode of the Tudor History and Travel Show. If you've loved the show, please take a moment to subscribe, like and rate this podcast so that we can spread the Tudor love. Until next time, my friends, all that remains for me to say is happy time travelling. Mm-hmm.